There's two topics that many people find really controversial, faith and politics. And we've been working through Paul's letter to the Romans chapter by chapter very thoughtfully, and we come to Romans 13, which is an intersection on faith and politics. This book speaks really directly about politics, and um, to get us to think about how the good news of God's grace for us in Christ has a formative effect on how the Christian relates to politics. So with no further ado, let's get into faith and politics. Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They're God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. This is God's word. Now, as we have been discussing here uh, over the last couple of weeks, there's a shift in the letter to the Romans from the 11 chapters. It's about the goodness of God's grace for us to chapter 12, which is what God's grace does through us. And then there's this call to transformation. And the catalyst for transformation is having God's mercy in view. Because when you have God's mercy in view, you have a sober self-view. These are the truths that precipitate this conversation about politics. So I want to orient you here. So if I have God's mercy in view, I have a sober self-view. If I have a sober self-view, then I don't fall into the ditch of either superiority or inferiority, but I actually relate to the people in my church community, and now this passage, the greater community, with a sense of humble confidence. And so this conversation now in the letter to the Romans, it shifts from how we as Christians relate to each other here in Redeemer, which is where it begins, what does love look like on the ground in the church community? And now it shifts to talk about our civil duty as citizens as we consider what love looks like out in the greater community. And so this passage actually gets us to think about what it means to have dual citizenship. You're citizens of Canada, but you're citizens of heaven. You're citizens of the city of Kitchener-Waterloo, and you are citizens of the city of God. And so what does our dual citizenship mean for us and how we relate to the greater community and how we relate to politics specifically? So we're going to look at a few things this morning to be thoughtful about this passage. The first thing is that there is a call here, a call to seek the good of the city. The second thing is a call to engage with opposing views with civility. And then thirdly, the empowering effect of this dual citizenship. So firstly, the call to seek the good of the city. This is a really tough text to swallow because it starts out by saying submit to the government 
And there's something in all of us that we hear that word submit and we're like the Wolverine immediately. And we're just not interested and some of us just have a visceral reaction to this idea. Why would Paul say this? Now I want to orient you again to the original audience, to the author's intent, and what was going on at the time. What government is Paul talking about that they're, that they're supposed to submit to? It's Rome. You know who is leading Rome at the time? We've been talking about it. It's 57 AD. It's Nero. Not a great guy. Nero was the kind of emperor where there were actually Romans who were like, hashtag, not my emperor. He was volatile. He was erratic. And there was a, it wasn't like all of Rome loved Nero. So this is not a great government. This is a totalitarian, volatile, uh, and hostile government. And yet Paul is saying of that government to the Romans, submit to the government. On the surface, this makes absolutely no sense. Uh, can you imagine being in Rome when Phoebe delivered this letter and then, she, and then they're reading through it and then they get to this part and they're like, did you, did you edit this on your way? This can't be, and Phoebe's like, don't kill the messenger. Um, this, I'm, just, I'm just delivering this letter here. Can you imagine the reaction to this? What's he saying? They didn't get to vote. It wasn't like, see, we, here we are as modern Christians in a country with the privilege of being able to vote. It's not like the Romans voted. It's not that they were like, I am so tired of Nero. Like, I am not voting for him in the next election. I am going to look for an emperor who is most consistent with my Christian values. I'm not sure if it's Galba or, you know, I'm not sure if, it, if it's him or if, if it's Vitellus. One of those guys has got to be closer than Nero to my personal values. And I, they couldn't, you know, and why am I hearing lions roaring? What, are they indigenous to this area? Is there a petting zoo I'm unaware of? The Romans weren't voting. So just imagine what it would have felt like have no say in what's going on in the government. And then Paul says, hey, you know what? Submit to the governing authorities. All, all, all government exists in the sense that it's been ordained by God. What is going on? Why would he say that? Well, when you stack this passage against the other passages, whenever God's people are in the minority, you're going to find an unmistakable trend. And the trend is that the people of God are called to seek the good of the city wherever and whenever they can, and challenge the city when they must. And when we were having our mini-series on faith and work at the, at the library a couple weeks ago, we talked about this. Can we seek the good of those who aren't seeking our good? Because when the children of Israel were being carted into Babylon, into slavery, this was the exact thing that they were told. In fact, it's a direct quote from, from Jeremiah who said, seek the, God says, seek the good of the city. That city was Babylon. Seek their good. Build houses, get married, have children, put roots down, Use your gifts to make the city flourish. Be a benefit to the city. And here we find it again in Rome. What is going on? How could, the, how could this be possible? How could it be possible for us as Christians today, not just here in Canada, but globally, when you consider, you have to remember, we're the minority of, of Christians in the world in Canada. There's not many of us in this country. Most of the Christians are on the other side of the pond. There's, there's a billion of them over there. And most of them are in contexts where they're not voting either. And yet the word of God still stands. So there is this call to seek the good of the city. And so when we unpack this passage, we're going to realize the premise for relating to the government in this way, Paul says, is that it's right and it's wise and it's reasonable. It's right in, it says it's right in verse 1, right? The government's instituted by God. God is not surprised by the government. God is not limited by the government. God is not thwarted by the government. God has always used for his divine purposes. The He's always used it. Governments that don't reflect him at all, governments that, that uh, don't adhere to his ways. God is just unmoved. He's not intimidated. He's sovereign. 
And so it's right. And so what Paul is saying is, listen, contrary to a climate, uh, you know, you know, today in Canada, where to have conversation about politics with civility um, usually ends up in this kind of venomous uh, hostility as identity politics are at play. What this text gives us is to say, you know, God is presiding over the government. He is the judge of the government. God being the judge it w- would be bad news for us as well if it were not for the mercy and the grace of Christ and having God's mercy in view, which is why we can seek the good of the city and not have a sort of kind of arrogance and entitlement about us as the people of God, but for there to be a humility about the way in which we go about trying to be a blessing in Kitchener and Waterloo, knowing that our lives are in the very hands of God. Verses 3 and 4 go, move on from the idea that it's right to also that it's wise, and Paul uses this uh, terminology that the government bears the sword. That's a figure of speech, meaning they exact uh, uh, judgment uh, and punish uh, wrongdoers, right? And so that's, that's a wise use of government to punish the lawless. It, it, if every single individual in this nation had the power to punish and legislate according to their own self-interest, that would not be manifest destiny and freedom. That would be utter chaos, Unless you have a very high anthropology and you think that absolutely everybody's a really good person deep, deep down and society would be great if the only thing the government did was, you know, build roads and stay out of our lives. That's not how things would play out. World history teaches us things don't go well when it's like, I will just hold ethics that are tribal so that whatever is good for me and my group is therefore right. Humanity has a long track record of politically operating that way. So what Paul gives us here is he goes, you know what? The idea that there is a uh, governing laws that punish the wrongdoers, this is a wisdom, this is a wise guidance of God. And so we uh, move on to the third thing, which you find in 6 and 7, is that this is, this is reasonable. It's reasonable in the sense that, that Paul indicates that to govern well is hard work. And therefore, in order for society to flourish, those who govern have a responsibility and are accountable to rule and govern well. And so those of us who are being ruled and governed well, served by the proper use of power, then it's reasonable that we submit well. Right? So he's giving us God's premise for government. He's not giving Nero a free pass on the way that Nero is doing government. But he is directing the people of God, orienting our way of relating so that we can live with a sense of freedom in our hearts, contrary to what may be happening around us, 21st century, 1st century, because we can seek the good of the city. And so, absolutely no doubt, everything I just told you is hard to swallow. In fact, most of you don't even like this sermon right now. Some of you who came for the first Sunday, you're like, I'm not sure I'm coming back, because I can't believe that the preacher's up here saying we got to submit to the government, because I can list five ways right now that reasons why I shouldn't submit to the government. No doubt we have a hard time with this. Because we will say the government is wasteful or corrupt or inefficient or they misuse their power or they infringe on our religious freedoms as Christians. But again, I want you to remember the context. Paul is writing to people who, I mean, God Almighty, who, who's whole, the, the Holy Spirit of God who superintends all scripture, knows that Rome was wasteful and oppressive and was infringing on their religious freedom. Like, he's aware and yet the text is here. So what does this teach us? There's, we want there to be a disclaimer, don't we? Like we want to read this and be like, we just want there to be a disclaimer. We can say, but if your political horse doesn't win the race, if the party you voted for isn't, isn't in power, then green light, 
Green light on engaging in political discourse with all the straw man fallacy you can muster. Strike an angry tone. Be sarcastic all the time. Make sure that whenever you meet another Christian who didn't vote the way that you did, let them know that they missed the Spirit of God, that they are not part of the elect. Make sure they know they got to get on board with Team Jesus. We want these kinds of disclaimers in here, you know, to be like, let them know this. Make sure, please, you share, you know, ill-advised and divisive political memes on your social media so that everybody knows you're an angry, disgusted Christian. We want these kind of disclaimers when we get frustrated that it doesn't seem like the government is seeking our good, our personal good. But we as Christians are called to seek the good of those who are not seeking our good. And to actually be quite liberated in the soul to be able to do so because we just frankly aren't moved at our core. And it doesn't mean that we're apathetic and apolitical and we stop voting and we, we just create a little church community and we take the Benedict option and we're like, okay, we're not going to get involved in society. It doesn't mean that whatsoever. It just means that at our core we're not shaken and volatile the way that everybody else gets so shaken when there's things that seem to be uh, working out that aren't far good. The people of God have always been called this way, whether Babylon, Rome, or today. And we can't do this unless we believe the gospel. So let's bring the gospel into this for a minute. If gospel and grace are just buzzwords, then texts like this and texts in the New Testament are going to make no sense because it's like you're being called to a life of losing. But when we bring the gospel in view, right, if the gospel is true, meaning that Jesus Christ, the historical figure who walked the earth in 33 AD, who was crucified on a Roman cross, according to the scriptures, according to Roman antiquity, according to the Babylonian Talmud, according to world history, that if three days later that tomb was empty, which it was, according to the scriptures, according to Roman antiquity, according to the Babylonian Talmud, According to world history, the tomb was empty. That's why the conspiracy theories exist, okay? So the life, the death, and the empty tomb is just a historical fact. And if the tomb is empty because Jesus Christ is God of creation, who he claimed to be, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, and if our lives are in the hands of the one who is God of the universe, then that has a, that has a life-changing impact and effect on how we understand the restoration of all things that's coming. Because the bodily resurrection of Jesus lets us know that there is a restoration that is coming. If Jesus came back as a phantasm, then everything would still be quite abstract. But he didn't come back as a phantasm. He came back and it was bodily resurrected. And so that gives us a hope that actually, you know, there is a restoration that is coming. One, one whose wisdom and justice transcends human ability. And so there is a wisdom and a justice that's coming. Nobody's getting away with anything. And thank God, thank God for his mercy. Otherwise, we wouldn't be getting away with anything either. We're not getting away with anything because Jesus Christ paid the price. This is the gospel. He paid it. God doesn't wink his eye at sin and go, let's pretend it didn't happen. He paid for it. So we trust in him. And that means that there's a restoration that's coming. A very real and tangible restoration. This is the promise of the gospel. Right? Spoiler alert on Revelation. Like God is restoring the earth and society and raising us from death to enjoy it. So... This changes our view, our ability to, just like, when, just like the Romans that would have read this, seek the good of the city. So let's move on to the next thing, the call to engage opposing views with civility. So again, we're in an age of Twitter. 
or everybody with two thumbs and opinion can angrily blast anybody at any time. And this is the culture in which politics is often kind of discussed. <clears throat> and so we're at this point in Canadian history where it is increasingly difficult to be civil when you're talking politics with people who have differing views. It's difficult, right? Thanksgiving's coming or Easter or Christmas and the family's going to get together and everybody's like, oh boy. <laughs> what topic is going to... Right? It happens. We're at a point in history where when those grade eights take their grade eight trip to Ottawa and they go to the House of Commons, when they observe a discussion in the House of Commons, they are... They are observing a lack of civility that would not be permitted in any preschool classroom in Canada. I wish that was a joke. But this is what they're observing. This is the climate that we're in. And so because of this, <clears throat> we are called as those who have souls at rest in God's grace to actually relate to everything quite differently. I want you to draw your attention to verse 7. Verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, Give everyone what you owe him. Give everybody what they're owed. And that reminds us, and it should remind us a little bit, of when Jesus said something that sounded a lot like give everybody what they're owed. Jesus made a comment in Matthew 22. He said, Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. And Paul definitely has that in view when he writes this. Those theolo theological commentators, historians are like, hey, listen, in the biz, we call this a theological callback. This is an epistemological shout-out. That's what this is. Paul's like, give everybody what they're owed. Now, when Jesus said that, when Jesus said, give to Caesar what's Caesar and give to God what's God's, Jesus was actually limiting the scope of how people understood government. He, Jesus was opposing the common cultural idea that Caesar could do whatever he wanted because the government was all-powerful. And by saying, give to Caesar what's Caesar and give, what God, give to God what's God's, Jesus was in essence saying, actually, you know, there's two authorities at work and Caesar's not all-powerful, contrary to popular opinion. Jesus said, give the government your taxes. Don't give them your worship. And you're going to relate to the political climate quite differently if you give the government your taxes and really in your heart of hearts you also give them your worship and your trust. There's going to be a volatility and anxiety that's going to come with giving government your, your, that, that level of trust. Give them your taxes but not your worship. And so the idea here when Jesus says this and of course Paul is echoing it in, in verse 7 to give everybody what they're owed is that yes give the government your taxes but you don't trust them with your life. You trust God with your life. He's writing to Christians in Rome when he's saying this. And he, notice in this passage, he says it twice about taxes, mentions it twice. It's like, ooh, he's just, you're sticking me with it. What's he saying? You can trust God with your life. Absolutely trust him. Everybody related to the government like they were all powerful. And, this, and what Jesus said and what Paul is saying here is, no, the government is not all powerful. The government is going to answer to God. Again, if you don't believe the gospel, that's not really consoling to you. You don't really care. You're like, yeah, but we need justice now. We need things to work out now. I need the government to legislate things that work out for my good now. And we become very myopic and we can't seek the good of the city and love our neighbors because we get consumed with the navel-gazing. Many, uh, when you have conversations uh, about politics with folks when they go to, go to vote, it's often quite pragmatic, right? Everybody sits down and looks at their family situation 
their personal kind of family scenario. How many kids do I have or are the kids gone or whatever? Look at their finances. Look at a number of things. They look at their T4. They consider what is going to be best for their specific situation, depending on what province they live in. And, 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 and as Canadians, we quite often vote quite pragmatically. And so that can be a very stressful, anxiety-filled way to approach each election when you're crossing your fingers hoping that the horse that wins the race is the one that's going to make sure that things work out for your good, your personal family good. The, the gospel liberates us out of that kind of worry. When you look at um, verse 3, Paul uses the phrase, he says, <clears throat> rulers are not a threat to those who do right. Well, obviously Rome was doing a lot of things that weren't right, right? So whose definition of right is Paul talking about? Is it Nero's definition of right? Or was it Nero's definition of right? Nero, Nero's way of approaching power, like many governments today that approach power, was a little bit like Simba from The Lion King. He's like, I just can't wait to be king because once I'm king, there's nobody to tell me to do this, or do that, or go here, or be there, however the song goes. Okay. I mean, that's the approach power. And so this text is saying there's a caveat here, there's a nuance here that the government ought to be doing right as God would define right. And obviously, there's times when the government does not do that. But then therein, of course, is for us to be able to engage with opposition with civility. You look at verse 5, and it says that our submission, look at verse 5, it's not just about fear of punishment, it's also a matter of conscience. Matter of conscience is an important nuance, meaning there may be times when I might have to have political discourse, write a letter to the MP, have a conversation about something that I don't agree with, because as a matter of conscience, there's something being legislated here that's actually a contradiction of uh, my convictions because I already have a king and the king isn't you. Now I'm going to speak in a respectful and intelligent, thoughtful way about this issue, but this is now a matter of conscience. Do you see this, this nuance here? So we're supposed to live in this peaceful, respectful submission because it's right, in so much as, of course, human law, Canadian law, doesn't instruct us uh, to disobey God's law. And so when there is a conflict between Canadian law and God's law, then this passage instructs our tone. This passage is informative of the tone in which our opposition ought to take, and the tone is civility. Genesis 41, Joseph rises to be the prime minister of Egypt, second in command to Pharaoh. Pharaoh wasn't leading according to the ways of God, but God in his had, providence had arranged for this to occur, for Joseph to rise to those ranks of power. And of course, he didn't, he didn't uh, bend on his, on his ethics, but yet God was in that. And, uh, but the government that he was serving was not operating according to the ways of God. Jeremiah 29, we already established this, as they're going into Babylon, God says, seek the good of the city. Acts chapter 5, preaching Jesus is made illegal. And what do the apostles do? What is their response when it's made illegal? They're in court, and they very respectfully and thoughtfully um, disobey. And they actually say, write to the leaders whether or not it's right for us to obey God. And then we leave that for you to judge. But with respectful civility, they then disobeyed in nonviolent, um, you know, uh, uh, respectfully and nonviolently. This is what they did. And in many places in the world, that's still occurring. I was in Cuba years ago when Castro was 
uh, still alive. Not that it's uh, necessarily easier for Christians today, but at the time when we were there, uh, it was volatile for the church. Some churches were okay, some weren't. One Sunday it was fine to worship, the next one it wasn't. It was volatile. It was difficult and kind of a confusing way to be a Christian uh, in Cuba because you never really knew if the authorities were going to be all right or not with what you were doing. And so we were on our way to one of the churches, and the friend that I was with, he got a text. Oh, we got to meet at a different place. The cops are there. So we go to a different place, and then that's where we met for church, right? Not causing problems in the city, not rising up and picketing and being angry and setting things on fire. Just respectfully, with civility, opposing the law that is contradictory to God's law. You look at Romans 13, where, where they're being called to do that again. Consider 1833, William Wilberforce is moved by conviction of God's law, so he opposes government law, he leads it through the abolition of the slave trade, he does that in a nonviolent way with civility. 1955, Dr. Martin Luther King, in a very nonviolent way, respectfully, intelligently, with civility, leads the civil rights movement, right, when this law is in contradiction to God's law. Over the last 50 years here in Canada, there have been legislations that have happened where it contradicts, uh, God's laws contradicted, uh, I'm sorry, Canadian laws contradicted God's God's law. 1969, uh, legislation passes in regards to abortion that's a different worldview than how God would consider the sanctity of of human life. 2005, uh, marriage is redefined, which is different than how we understand the scriptures uh, direct us as believers to engage in, in marriage. About 2016, euthanasia, uh, how we consider uh, sanctity of human life in, 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 in that regard. Legislation is passed. Again, it's different than how we understand we're supposed to live uh, and relate to life and death as Christians. All of these things, that legislation, even in medically assisted uh, death today, is being expanded this ne- this month or next month, so that instead of death being in the foreseeable future. They're taking that off the table to expand uh, those desiring medically assistance in death um, to go beyond those with conditions that are uh, leading to foreseeable death. There's an expansion. There's these things that are happening in Canada where we say, how do we relate to all of this? Well, there are some Christians who have a conviction that they should spend their time, their energy, their resource fighting to reverse the laws of 1969 or 2005 or 2016, right? This is their conviction. So if you happen to be one of those who have that sort of a conviction that the laws of Canada ought to be reversed, then this text defines the tone in which you would engage in any of those conversations. And the tone is with respect and honor. So those who you dialogue with that don't share your Christian worldview ought to walk away from that conversation feeling like, you know, we don't agree on this. But there was a respect and a civility and an honor in which that dialogue was happening. And, and we ought to continue to pray as it relates at least to our brothers and sisters who are in the medical field today, who most of us as Christians, regardless of what the government legislates, we can live according to God's ways, teach our children to live according to God's ways, and maybe not be affected by those laws because we're not physically being asked to act out of accordance with Christian conviction. But there are Christians who uh, their livelihood is being affected in a very direct way where the legislation that's on the table today would mean um, you actually can't act according to your conscience, but actually your, your actions are being mandated. And so that's, they are now in a very difficult position. So we ought to con- pray for brothers and sisters that are in the medical community being affected by that. But this 
directs, this passage directs the way in which we engage opposing views. And it's with this civility. Which leads to the last thing of the empowering effect of our dual citizenship. So, both the first century church in Rome and the 21st century church today being told, hey, we ought to submit to the government and we ought to do it with a respectful and an honoring way. We've got to think about our dual citizenship. So what does that really mean? Again, go back to verse 7 where it says, give to everyone what you owe them. Right? If you owe the taxes, pay the taxes. If, if you owe somebody money uh, because they worked for you, show them the money. If you owe them respect and honor because of the office that they hold, right? then, then, then do that. And when we consider God, you know, what do we owe God? Well, we can't really pay God back for the grace that was freely given to us in Christ. But there is this gratitude with, 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 uh, that, that, we live, that we live with. And so the good news of being God's child, the good news of our dual citizenship, is that we can actually give everybody what is owed to them with the confidence that we will, in the end, lack nothing. You see, what the government of Canada is owed is honor and respect because of the office that they hold, not because of the personal character or the personal integrity of a personal individual in the government. That's not the basis on which we give the honor and the respect. It's the office. And so the only way we can do that is knowing, you know what, my life is actually not in the hands of the government. My life is actually in the hands of God. And because I believe at my core, my life is in the hands of God, I can therefore give to the governing authorities the kind of respect and dignity that is owed to them. I can engage in political discourse and disagree with people that don't agree with me with peace in my heart because, quite frankly, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. And because that is true, I'm now liberated from the kind of anxiety and worry that comes from actually rendering unto Caesar your taxes and your worship and your trust. And so, to borrow from uh, Augustine, one of the church fathers, the way he thought about the church was, and he talked about this, he wrote 14 volumes on the city of God, that the church is a city within the city. And so what this means is that the Canadian government, you know, may legalize or permit uh, something, it can legalize and permit anything. But for us and for our children, um, human law doesn't take precedence over the wise guidance of God's law. And so we recognize that God's law cannot be divorced from God's love. He is, God is love, and his law serves to flourishing love. And so to keep the law is to be a person of love. And so we run all of this through a gospel filter. And if Jesus Christ was bodily resurrected, not as a phantasm, but as a, a human being who said to his disciples, I'm kind of hungry, you got anything to eat, and he has breakfast by the sea, and he has fish and biscuits for lunch. Okay, if, if, if the resurrection is that tangible, that's critical to our worldview, because what it means is what's coming is a restored earth, a restored society of love, restored bodies, raised to enjoy it, flourishing without suffering, which means right in the here and now, we can actively use our gifts to care for others bless others, and seek the good in context where it doesn't seem like anybody is seeking our good. We can enjoy peace and rest and teach our children to live in peace and rest in a context where, the, you know, even if the political horse that you voted for doesn't win the race, you still have peace and rest. And so we can look at living 
in the city of Waterloo as citizens of city in Waterloo. We're citizens of heaven in practical and loving ways, right? Where we are uh, considering this. We want to be the kind of Christians um, that, you know, if all of us were, had moved out of the city tomorrow, uh, that people would uh, miss the love. We would hope to be that, you know. St. John's has been feeding the homeless for 40 years. If they closed St. John's Kitchen, that love and care would be tangibly felt. If St. Mark's stopped opening up their facility for the homeless to sleep there uh, during the winter months, their love and care would be physically felt. I know that you all forgot about the thousand sandwiches you made last month because it was 10 minutes out of your life after the service and you forgot about it until I mentioned it. But if you didn't make those thousand sandwiches, that would have been physically felt. As I was dropping those sandwiches off at the shelter, people were cheering like, you know, peanut butter and jam had never been so exciting. And so, you see, the, the, the gospel, the resurrection, it matters in tangible ways because as a church we consider how do we then, as recipients of great grace, be ministers of grace. As elders, when we talk about the possibly owning a facility in the future as a church, this is the kind of discussion we have. How can we love the city with the facility? How could we serve the city with the facility? Because if you can't love the city and serve the city with the building, we may as well just rent until the return of our Lord. But if there's a way that we could tangibly be a presence to seek the good of those who may not be seeking our good, this is what the scriptures call us to and how we walk it out. So the, the empowering effect of our dual citizenship is that we use our God-given gifts to bless our co-workers and bless our classmates and bless our neighbors to serve the city's flourishing and we will not be flooded with anxiety or crippled with worry when the government does something that in our view is actually a hindrance to flourishing because we will give the government our taxes but we won't give them our worship. Our lives are in the hands of God. Let's pray.